0: I'm Alex and I'm Matt and welcome back to the show our guest this week is Ben Anderson a British journalist television reporter and writer a winner of the foreign press award he has produced documentaries for numerous television outlets throughout his career and currently works for vice he also wrote no worse enemy based on his reporting of the war in Afghanistan his documentary films are also widely available online
1: so, Mark, I feel you owe us an explanation for your absence these past years.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, to our dedicated listenership, um, to whom go all great things. Uh, apologies for the uh, delays in getting this uh, season 2016 up and running. Uh, yes, I was in Iran, uh, as anyone who watches uh, CNN or American media television knows. Um, and I was there for a Farsi immersion program. Uh, which I completed and did very well in. Um, but unfortunately, on my way out the door, um, uh, had a little run in with, uh, I'd say the law, but I think that kind of envisions like a sheriff in like a cowboy hat. So I'm gonna go ahead and say with a kind of paranoid intelligence apparatus, cause that's probably a more accurate mental picture. Um, and, uh, unfortunately was, uh, held, held in the country, uh, when I was quite ready to leave. Uh, for for 41 days that uh, I, I could have done could have done without. Um, so then went uh, back to the US in mid January, uh, kind of detoxed for a little bit, and then um, yeah, you know, Alex, I, I've always wondered if you have the same thing. Actually, I've noticed that like when you come back from. Uh, places you know like Afghanistan or the Middle East. I've, I don't know what your adjustment time is, but I've known. First, I realized that I have one, and then second, I realized that it still applied even with the situation uh, in Iran. And I mean, like three to four weeks of processing things and kind of uh, getting a few stories out there and, and putting you know my my narrative on on what had happened to me, rather than let everyone else <laughs> try and think about what had happened. Uh, I realized I felt pretty good again and was was. Uh, to to plagiarize my own phrase, uh, you know, reasserting myself, and uh, was was kind of ready for the ba- for the next thing. So I, uh, you and I are now uh, recording this show, and I'm back in Turkey with uh, my usual work with uh, Syrian refugees and the World Food Program. Uh, what have you been up to, Alex?
1: Um, very little. I have been um, immersing myself back in uh, PhD, finally getting it finished. Um, writing um <laughs> lots and lots and lots uh every day I have a kind of very um uh specific routine that I go through every day um which is, is having great results um but otherwise um nothing really to report but I hope once the PhD is done uh in a few weeks um then I'll be able to uh start doing more interesting things and reading more interesting things
0: again we all wish you the best of luck finishing up that PhD and without further ado, here's the show.
1: How did you get involved in journalism because uh I know you don't really have a uh, a background in it in the traditional sense.
2: Yeah, I mean I grew up in a household that um you know there weren't there weren't sort of, you know newspapers around every day. There wasn't there wasn't and just just my background the the town I grew up in there wasn't you know, it wasn't part of daily conversation to sort of talk about issues around the world and then just by chance started reading about things um the autobiography of Malcolm X sort of started my curiosity about the rest of the world and and you know issues that I I I, I instantly knew I cared about uh, and then it was the invasion of East Timor that I read a lot about um, and how you know Britain supplied weapons to Indonesia. Is um, would that have mean, to... John Pilger? Yeah, um, yeah. John Pilger was one of the ones who first first got me got me started off. I actually wrote to him and he sent me a little um, passport photo back with free East Timor on the back when I was about (laughs) 17 years old but you know as a 17 year old reading about that I was you know I I almost wanted to go out onto the streets and and tell people Um, you know I couldn't believe this wasn't front page news I forget that great I.F. Stone quote something like you'll never know where where you'll find a front page story you know I just couldn't believe this wasn't the the kind of thing that was being talked about by everyone every day Um, and still feel that way now uh, you know, 23 years later, I still really don't understand what, you know, what a front page story is or a breaking news story is, as opposed to, um, you know, Afghanistan, Gaza, Congo, um, you know, whatever all these other stories are that I'm trying to cover. Um, so, sorry to answer your question. Yeah, that got my interest um, going, and I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I had dreams of being a novelist when I was uh, 17, 18 years old, but quickly switched to, to wanting to be a journalist um, and submitted lots of articles to lots of people and. I haven't read them since. I'm sure they were they were awful. Um, but I got a few, you know, polite rejections and, and letters of encouragement back. And then eventually, a friend of a friend um, heard about a, a production company at Channel Four who were trying to do a story about the funeral business in the UK, yep. and they needed someone to go undercover as a as a funeral director or undertaker. And my CV at that point was basically he's he's been in some sick, sticky situations and managed to talk his way out of them and he's, he's, you know, compared to most people who, who work in TV, he's, he's sort of, you know, somewhat streetwise. Um, so if there are scams going on, he'll be able to get people talking about the scams. Um, so I got that job, and I, I spent about three months undercover as an undertaker in Salisbury and was getting incredible footage, but the budget ran out. So I did another three months unpaid on it, and the film came out on it, and it did really well. It was very popular. Um, and off the back of that, um, a, a BBC team approached me. Um, there was a guy called Donald McIntyre. He was a very famous reporter, um, and hired me to be part of this this team that was making a big BBC One series called McIntyre Undercover. And at the time, I was living in a squat, basically in Brixton. Um, you know, Except
1: it, was, it was, was really Ben undercover.
2: <laughs> yeah, me, me and several others. Yeah, yeah. We we did uh, a lot of the legwork and um, you know. But before I realised that was the final format, I thought I'd landed, you know. Amongst the best team in possibly in the world in terms of investigative journalism, um, slowly that turned out not to be the case. But that's how it felt when they first approached me and offered me the job. But off the back of that, I managed to you know, stay inside the BBC, and then eventually, um, someone saw me alongside him, and they were getting a bit sick of him, but said, "Give the give the kid next to him a chance. Ask him if he wants to do a, a series." And, and I'd always wanted to, you know, to to international affairs and conflict. So. I was racking my brains trying to think of an idea. And then George Bush made his Axis of Evil speech. And then John Bolton added three more countries to the list. So there was an A-list and a B-list. Uh, the A-list was Iran, Iraq and North Korea. The B-list was Syria, Libya and Cuba. And I figured out that the only axis between those six countries was that you could get into all six on a tourist visa. Um, so that's what I did. And, and me and a friend with a small handheld camera just, just went and sort of filmed you know, the reality of just, just life from the streets up. Um, and it was everything was was spontaneous and sort of intimate and verite and it, it you know it ended up being a really popular format and that's yep. that's almost what I've been doing ever since. So
0: with this career trajectory that you just kind of outlined for us, I'm I'm curious what you think about uh, formal training or uh, education for going and becoming a reporter. Must must people go to uh, school, communication school, journalism, uh, study it? Uh, to to go ahead and uh, produce great content. I mean, you won a Foreign Press Award without you know formal training, so to speak. Um, what are your feelings about going to, to school to learn about the things that you've done without going to school?
2: I mean, if you can go somewhere and learn the basic tools um, and you know have all those resources to play with, then then great. Um, I'm not sure you can be taught to have the kind of curiosity you need to really do this job. Well, I mean, you need the kind of curiosity where you're, you know, it's your entire life and you're willing to go somewhere for for, for months on end and endure all kinds of hardships and, you know, possibly sometimes take on some risk as well. Um, You know, I think you need to be in that state of mind where if you had another job when you got home, what you would do is be reading about about these issues. Um, And I'm not sure you can you can teach that. Um, and other things as well i mean, I, you know, I said curiosity um empathy um an ability just to li- genuinely listen and not just try and have have you know views you've already formed confirmed i you mean, know all all the qualities which I would consider to be most important in the people that i you know I, I I respect the most i'm not sure how much they can be taught so if there's somewhere you can go to learn how to edit how to shoot um you know um some basics about about writing then then great but but I'm pretty sure that of all the people I I sort of admire the most. Um, most of them didn't go to journalism school.
1: To pick up on that thread, um, who were um, I guess some of those people who were shaping that that early approach to journalism? I mean, it sounds to me that you kind of developed this working attitude to how to gather information, how to kind of exist in in this world from from reading print journalism.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and I think I still. Um, try and copy writers far more than i copy filmmakers um you know someone like uh, john lee anderson um you know right. who just 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 goes alone and just just soaks up as much as as possible um george orwell was was probably my number one hero um Kepetinsky, i mean i know you know there are question marks about how yeah. much the, the books are actually true now but just just the idea of going somewhere and, and staying long enough and, and sort of trying to disappear into the into the woodwork as much as possible. Just, witness what would have happened had you not have been there um you know that that that's what always appealed to me and that was all modeling and even now you know i think i'm i'm still trying to actually like write even though the medium i'm mostly using is, is filmmaking um you know it's it's, it's hopefully long you know, form sort of trying to figure out things as you go through when actually happening um and as i said just just you know, just, just trying to witness what was there, or um, well, what you know, what would have happened had you had you have not been there. You're know, trying to become ignored enough or trusted enough where where people will let you see, um, you know, the reality of whatever's happening where wherever you are. If that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, where where do you kind of fall on the um, uh, the presence of the journalist uh, in the story? I mean, from I don't know someone like martin bell who let's say would remove himself more or less completely from the story to to now this kind of style of journalism where um uh yeah it's considered kind of very important to have a uh essentially a white face in the story to be able to explain it to um yeah
2: yeah this, that, that's an awkward one for me because i spent uh, the last few years before i joined vice working completely alone um and you know getting somewhere and just filming everything through my camera. But apart from occasionally hearing a question I might ask, I I would, I would never be in it. And actually I loved working that way. Um, And, and, you know, it it really was figuring out the story while you were recording. And as a result, the footage felt far more, I think, vibrant than, than, than a lot of the stuff you see, which is clearly set up and controlled. Um, Then I, when I joined Vice, I assumed I'd just be doing the same thing, but they said, look, we want you to be, to be a correspondent. And, you know, I understand that for, I think probably particularly American viewers, it, it, it makes sense um, or makes it more appealing for them to have someone they can relate to as a, as a conduit. Um, but it's very easy to go go too far with that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you look at especially especially a lot of people in, in American television news here, and the whole point of going somewhere is that they get seen with a black jacket on somewhere that looks vaguely dangerous. Right. Um, it's probably a military base, which is one of the safest places in that country. And there's probably nothing happening between, behind them except helicopters taking off and landing. Um, but, you know, the point is to get that live shot um, of them looking like they're reporting on the front lines. I think that's almost worse than not going at all because it gives the impression they've actually been out and seen something. And, and so what they're saying is, is, you know, holds a lot more validity, but... I mean, I've seen some shocking things of people turning up for 24 hours, doing those live pieces to camera every 15 minutes, uh, you know, possibly interviewing a politician or general who says, oh, everything's going great, (laughs) and then leaving. Right. Um, And that's just, 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 just woeful. And and I'm amazed at how common that, that seems to be here. And sometimes it's not even in the same country. You know, you you might see someone reporting on ISIS from, from Beirut, from, you know, the the roof of a five-star hotel in Beirut. (laughs) Right.
0: Uh, taking that thread about, you know, standing on a, on a military base and filming helicopters taking on, on and off. Uh, yeah. After your work in Helmand, uh, which we'll get into in just a few questions, um, I'm curious, what, what made you think that writing a book was uh, the, the right next step? Uh, did that feel like a logical corollary to what you had, the documentaries and the films you have been involved in uh, with camera? Why take to, to the written word?
2: I mean, I'd always wanted to, just because, you know, if you if you said now recommend 10 documentaries that will change your life, I, I think I'd struggle to come up with 10. I could come up with 100 books straight away that, that you know, I, I would I would say you have to read this before you do anything else. Right. So I'd right. always wanted to read a book just because I respect writing and books more than I respect documentaries. Um, but I think it was just, it was just the frustration of going to Hellman time and time again, um, seeing how badly things were going there and how... Clearly, things were getting worse and yet constantly hearing everyone, including, you know, not not just the obvious um, suspects, um, but but, you know, supposed experts Uh, um, and it not never really being challenged. So I just thought, you know, I I don't know how many people are going to read this, but I just want to get everything I've seen into one place um, so that if someone is. Is curious enough. It's it's there um, somewhere. You know, I, I've heard people say in the past that they had to write a book, and I, I was always skeptical when I heard that. But I really did feel like I just, you know, in in a, in a simpler form as possible, just get it all down in paper on one place, so that if at any point someone does want to know what the war actually looked like from 2007 to, to the present day, then then there it was. Um, I'm not sure how much difference it's actually made that all of the evidence is is on paper in one place, but um, yeah, that was the that was the, it felt like a very logical reason to to, to do it. Mm-hmm.
0: As 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 somebody who's crossed then from one side to the other, uh, I'm curious which which project did you find uh, more difficult? It's probably a bit of an apples to oranges comparison, but you know, putting together uh, no worse enemy, your book, or putting together uh, your films from Helmond.
2: It is oranges and lemons, and there is, you know, there's arguments um, for, for for both. I mean, the you know the great thing about making documentaries is um, you can make a living from it. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not going to get rich, but you can you can pay the bills. Um, <laughs> ha- had I have only been going to Afghanistan to to write and then eventually write the book, I would have, I mean, been so far below the minimum wage, I would have been would have been starving. Um, Witness like my hours. career. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say something, Alex?
1: No, I was just saying witness my career.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm full of admiration for people who can somehow make it work. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how, how I, how I could ever have, have, made it work. And of course, documentaries. You know, I mean, that, you know, some, some documentaries you do will be seen by 20 million people. Um, whereas my book sold, I think, 15 or 16,000 copies, um, which is, which is, <laughs> and, and the publishers were happy with that number as well. But I think that was a depressingly low number okay. um but at the same time you also think that if someone reads a book they're actually concentrating as they read the book whereas a documentary especially a documentary on television they might be you know making tea or, or checking their phone or so 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 you never know and if i can keep on doing both i'd I'd love to keep on doing both i mean i'm i'm slightly worried that um and i'm not i'm not the sort of most um you know uh poetic writer I <laughs> think is one way of putting it um, so I never thought I was particularly a great writer I thought I had a very sort of fairly simple fairly ugly sort of oafish style but I think my writing may have suffered over the last two years because I've been so busy at Vice doing doing many many documentaries that I've I've been writing a lot less but I'm trying to get back to writing now.
1: Um, what is it about Afghanistan that you keep Coming back there, I mean, I know you've returned to various places in your uh, your career, but it seems, uh, at least in recent years, Afghanistan was a place, particularly Helmand, that you kept on coming, kept on going back to. What is it that's special about it, or is it just that um, uh, there was a particular story you wanted to follow through various incarnations of um, the kind of international presence there?
2: um I mean, it was never my intention to keep on going back so many times. I think I think Afghanistan is probably. Probably second only to Israel-Palestine in terms of, you know, once you get there and actually actually get to really look around and speak to people, it's it's so far away from from the country in conflict you'll read about or, or see reported when it is written about and reported, um you know, in the US or in the UK. Um, that that I think made me keep on wanting to go back, um, you know, just to, just to try and show some side of what it's actually like. And, and you know, as, as you know, the, the the people you meet in Afghanistan are just some of the most wonderful, hospitable, um, you know, people ever. So I wanted to go back for that reason as well, because I felt like so often their side of the story wasn't getting told at all. Um, and also just, just a connection to particular places, um, you know, Going back to, I went back to Marja recently, and I've been there in 2010 for the Operation Mushterak, you know, the biggest operation since the start of the war, um, Obama's version of the of the surge. Um, and so going back five years later and, and seeing uh, an ALP unit who were basically one family having to def- to defend their own home. Um, the commander was the grandmother of the family, and the grandchildren who were 10, 12, and 14 years old had to fight. Um, you know, when you see something so huge like operation Mushrak, all the all the, the money and the and the, and the lives um you know that that went to, to 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 trying to remove the taliban from marja and then all the promises that were made about what was going to happen next and then seeing what actually happened next it's 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 incredible and you know i, I think uh it sounds like marja is is now in the hands of the taliban and Sangin is is Certainly heavily contested, and, and most of it is in the hands of the Taliban now. You know, when you hear that, that that makes me want to go back and and and, and show it because you still hear statements about. Um, I mean, you still hear statements about the war being over in Afghanistan here often. Right. Um,
1: <laughs> oh, after after kind of all of those years going back and and that kind of um, uh, kind of deep immersive time you spent there, what what would you say are kind of things that you learned in terms of whether it's just in terms of kind of the international engagement there or um uh groups like the Taliban or w- whatever it is what what were the kind of big big takeaways that you, that you had from that time
2: oh so many um i mean the the, the the black and white idea we always had about about you know um the the our allies being the good guys and the Taliban being the bad guys and and that there was some, somehow it was believed that the Northern Alliance or, or our other allies were were you know going to help uh, liberate women, for example, uh, whereas all the Taliban wanted to do was 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 hide women and, and, and lock them indoors at best. Um, and actually, as I think I think I think I was talking to Felix once, and and uh, and he said you know the Taliban and the Northern Alliance have no ideological differences whatsoever about the treatment of women um, you know having that having that, that those black and white definitions was, was ludicrous Try, trying to rebuild an entire culture um you know fr- from outside um and using mostly very young men who are mostly trained to fight and not not be engineers and politicians and diplomats and judges Um, was always going to fail. I mean, you know, the the counterinsurgency theory always rested on the fact that, or the the belief that there was supposed to be something to hand over to. Um, And for many, many reasons, there was never anything to hand over to that that would be willing or or able to govern in places like Sangin and uh, and Marja, or certainly wouldn't. Be um, for lots of reasons, you know, a credible alternative to, to to the Taliban or what we what we called the Taliban in those regions. I mean, it was you know, Sangin was was just a, a, a war between two sides in the you know over over drug trafficking, which which was never never mentioned. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could go on, but that, yeah, those those are some of the 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 biggest lesson, lessons. And, and also, you know, you often hear about it called the, um, the 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 longest war in American history, and you think, well. <laughs> That's kind of true if you forget the fact that, that the U.S. kind of took the first seven years off <laughs> and, right. and, and did, did, you know, very little. Um, and then suddenly noticed that, that the Taliban were popping up again all over the place or, I mean, not popping up again, but, you know, ha- having power again all over the place. Um, you know, I, I, I think if if anyone now is going to believe in the idea of, of, of where intervention working, um, you know, you have to go in and have these these intentions of of nation building and all the other things that are supposed to come with it from day one. Um, I think there's a very small window um, for for any chance of success, and and you know, waiting seven or eight years before you start really trying to nation build is 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 absolutely hopeless. Um, I mean, I think no matter what was achieved from 2008 2009 onwards, and it was always going to be a big big ask. Um, i think it would have been far too late by then when we'd already put in power some of the very people whose, you know whose behavior had led people to welcome the Taliban in the first place
1: um you've in your book and um uh, i guess some of some of what you were just talking talking about um you've kind of uh, intersected or had some kind of um uh, i guess the the work has has started to to cross over into this kind of policy world um and kind of uh, Looking at not only the stuff that you saw on the ground, but looking at how that, that then um, corresponded to you know statements being made by press officers, let's say, um, uh, and so on. Um, how how have you found that that difference um, as well? I guess, uh, and I guess maybe you started doing that when you were when you were working on the book. But I mean, have you have you found that different in any way? Has it um, changed how you approach your journalism in some ways?
2: I, I try not to do that too much i think I, I think i'm slowly coming into this, com, coming to this this conclusion that that if you consider yourself to be um you know one one small member of a, of a big team and, and everyone if everyone plays to, to their strengths then everyone plays their part and together um you know you'll do a very good job um so there are other people who are far better than me on, on dissecting policy just because they have the and the patience and the powers of concentration to, to read all the stuff that, 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 that comes out. And I just, I mean, just, just sometimes, you know, purely for emotional reasons, I just can't can't read it every time there's a new statement comes out because it's just so infuriating. Um, yeah. But I, I leave that to someone like, um, you know, El Stani on, on Twitter who just does, does right. a brilliant job of yeah. that stuff and actually ma- manages to make it amusing as well, which is a, a particular skill. Um, but no, the only times I'd really get involved is when, when you know you had statements that were just just so ludicrous and so far removed from from what it was what was very obviously happening on the ground um and i think you know to, to follow on from what i said before it, i think my strengths are probably just to get somewhere you know difficult and just be able to to stay there long enough time to actually you know witness things things happening um and that's always been uh, the bulk of my work and then then you know, maybe in in the script afterwards, or if I write afterwards, then I'll add um, what I can about what the policy was supposed to be, or or, or what you know whichever general uh, said um, was actually happening. Um, but but the, the the focus is always on you know verity or or, or or you know capturing the, the 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 actual stuff stuff happening. It's it's you know a, a very very simple method of just just bearing witness and recording evidence and saying, here's what it actually looks like. And if sometimes, um, I mean, the the best example would be, this is what winning looks like. When General Allen, on his last day in office, said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, um, the future is the Afghan security forces pushing back the Taliban. Uh, This is victory. Uh, This is what winning looks like. And we should not shrink from using these words. Um, and i knew that that you know that was nothing like yeah. what was happening <laughs> um so so that became the title of the film and we opened with with him giving giving that speech and then straight away cut to a police commander in Sangin admitting that he and his his commanders all um raped young boys who who they had as you know servants chai boys um, so i'll do it like that when it's just irresistible but but most of the time it's right. still on on actually getting that 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 footage if that makes sense
0: in in your opinion is there is, is there a dearth of this journalism that just kind of sits there and, uh, has kind of the camera rolling, so to speak, like eyes open and just watching, um, with no agenda whatsoever and kind of figure out what it means, uh, on the back end? I mean, do you see enough of this or, or now that you've gone through these experiences kind of are hypersensitive to, well, hold on, this isn't exactly, uh, neutral, uh, reporting or we're definitely only seeing, you know, inside the military base watching helicopters take off?
2: Yeah, I you know, I don't know how much of, of what what other journalists do is is how much they're willing to do or how much they're they're able to do. I, I, can I, do. I, I do right. feel, incre- yeah, yeah. I, you know, I know that that for many the idea of them being sent to to Hellman for a month or two um, without even knowing specifically what what's going to happen or what they're going to do. I, you know, I don't I don't know many people who would get get that kind of support. Um, and I'm incredibly lucky here. To I mean, when when Shane hired me, he he pretty much said, look, you can you can do whatever you want. Um, there's never really a question about budgets. I mean, I'm, I'm very cheap anyway. And, you know, going to Helmand, you don't really pay for food. You don't really pay for accommodation because you sleep on the ground. Uh, transport is often free if you're, you know, you're with a, a military unit back and forth. So it's not that expensive. But, but I don't know many people in, in newspapers um, working for, for TV news outlets who, who have the support where they're able to go somewhere for, for a month or two. Um, without knowing exactly what they're going to get, and paying no attention whatsoever to the to the 24 hour news cycle. So I'm I'm very very lucky to have that support. Um, but but you know, like I said, I'm not sure other people. So, I mean, I'm, it's difficult. You can you can you can choose who you compare yourself to. If you compare yourself to photographers and writers, um, I think you'll often be put to shame because they're they're so good um, and and go to you know in, into so much depth. If you compare yourself to particularly American um, TV news reporters, then, then you could you could think you're, you know, um, the, the, the greatest, uh, most intelligent, analytical, <laughs> bravest correspondent that ever lived. Um, because it's, it's, you know, I came to America with low expectations, but, but trying to watch um, news of international events on, on, on television here is, it's impossible. It's at very best, it's news for children. Um, and often it's not even that it's, it's even the headline doesn't doesn't really reveal anything and then there's no follow up to the headline um but again i don't know if that's if that's through choice or because they just don't have the support to to, to go to these countries and and spend as as much time as as i get to spend there
1: well i think, i mean you you also had kind of at various points um uh you don't have to name any names or anything but like there were various points where um, uh, you know you were perfectly fine going to report on a certain place or something even I, I seem to remember when I was living in Kandahar you know coming to visit me in the city or something you'd have to you wouldn't get the kind of security clearance or, or something from from either an insurer or the company's insurer or something like that so stuff that you know you'd spend three months kind of living on the front lines in, in Helmand or something but then you know to be able to kind of cross the road in a, a much safer place then that was denied.
2: Yeah I don't remember that happening often it happened I mean most of the time I was given a fairly free reign sometimes I I would I would go alone I mean the the battle for Marja um, the BBC uh, refused backing on that at the last minute Um, they said because they thought it was too dangerous I was going to be with the the marines who were actually going to get dropped into the middle of Marja and then just just fight their way out Um, so after pretending to be interested for a while or saying they were interested for a while said said no at the last minute and you know, with two weeks to go, I couldn't get anyone else to back me. Um so I went there with with no no backer whatsoever, uh, no insurance, um, borrowed some equipment, funded the whole trip myself. So in instances like that, then I can I can do whatever I want and, and go wherever I want. And I was always a freelancer for the BBC, so I often, I often had um that, that that freedom. Obviously if something would have happened to me, I would have, you know, I mean like 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 uh, a friend of mine, Giles Dooley, he he was somewhere um, without all the backing you might get from from a major media organization and it and it, it pretty much bankrupted him when you know, when he got when he got hurt um, yeah i'm
0: I'm actually curious if you could expand on that yeah that that 's kind of the the perennial topic is uh you know too dangerous to go or uh oh, i 'll just go there myself i mean and if something happens to you then it 's all you know paperwork and legislation and lawsuits on on the back end how do you i mean how do you are do you sympathize at all with uh you know, okay, maybe this is too dangerous. Have you ever kind of felt like there were any limits for you? Or how do you, how do you perhaps, best saying this, how, how, how did you assess, uh, you know, this is too dangerous or this isn't too dangerous, I should be all right, uh, inevitably understanding you're taking a risk?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, with Afghanistan, it was always difficult to, to take it in, in fairly easy steps. So, I mean, on my last trip there, I spent quite a lot of time with the, the counter-narcotics chief in Lashkar and I was able to sleep um, in within his compound. Um, and then I could gauge the risk of going to Marja or, or you know, Musakala or wherever from from there day by day. And um, so Afghanistan, it's fairly easy to to take it in stages where, you know, you always have um, a safe, safe base. And, and from there, depending on what the operation is or what's just happened, you can you can decide day to day. Um then again, you look at Syria and I think Syria has become right. so bad now and the risk of being held, taken hostage is, is so high. I mean, even if you're, you know, across the border in Turkey, I think the, the risk is high now because ISIS apparently have, have people there looking for Western hostages. Um, I think that that's become too dangerous. In, in Afghanistan, I always felt like it was possible um, to gauge it day by day. And also, I, I've i been in some very bad situations in, in in Helmand with Afghan forces and American and British forces. But... I never felt like I, I was in a position where um, you know the guys I was with might be overrun, um, and you know everyone would be wiped out. I mean, I've been I've been in quite a few situations where a number of people have been killed, um, but one it's always easy for one side to pull back if if things are going very badly. Um, you know that that that's a, the green on blue attack was always the threat of a green on blue attack was always very frightening in Afghanistan and, and almost happened a few times as well. Um, but it's not like Syria. You don't really have any idea how much risk you're taking a lot of the time because you don't know how trustworthy or not, um, you know, that, that any rebel group you're with with might be. Um, you don't know who's seen you traveling from from, from A to B. And I, I think it's got to the point now where where most people who are covering Syria um, in detail are and, and now saying, at best, I'll go in and out the same day. Um, there aren't many people now doing the kind of, you know, weeks and weeks long trips they, they, they used to do. And I think for good reason. Um, and the major news organisations are certainly pulling back from doing those trips. And, you know, I remember Libya in the early days of, of the war in Syria, it felt like there were lots of young freelancers, you know, with the DSLR. Who were just desperate to get out there and, and, and were taking some some crazy risks. And that feels like it's 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 slowed down a great deal now.
0: It, with the reduction in people going in, uh, you know there's also been then this rise of of you know the sense that this is a war you you can just watch on on YouTube. Um, yeah. you know have, have you ever come across uh, what are your thoughts on that as, as just like this is uh, must be more inherently understood as just one-sided information this isn't exactly the camera. Just on and recording this is all coming out from, from one group or another, yet this is the footage that so many um, networks, you know, have to, have to lean on because it's so uh, dangerous to go inside.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's possible if you're, if you, you know, I, I, I mostly watch those videos through, through Twitter and normally the videos are shared by someone very knowledgeable. Um, who can explain what's true or not, or the significance of, of a certain weapon that's being used for the first time. I think then it's possible to you know, follow events um, properly. Um, when you see the stuff just raw, it's often impossible. I remember one video, I think it was CNN, pay, paid quite a lot of money for some footage in Afghanistan of uh, an ISIS training camp. And it was two guys doing Kung Fu. Um, and it was, I mean, it, you know, it, it wasn't even carry on, carry on ISIS in Afghanistan. It was, it was it's so bad. And they, I think they paid $20,000 for this footage. Right. And that, I mean, that could have been anything. Um, and the person who was presenting this footage is not the most reliable commentator. And, and, and that was just, you know, completely meaningless. but, but, yeah, you know, there are lots of people who have become very good at analysing, especially footage from Syria. And, you know, slightly worrying for me, um, you know, we, we've done a few films where most of the films are our footage, but we've included some some right. archive. And they always say ISIS archive or Taliban archive or whatever in the corner of the screen. But you'll talk to people a few weeks later and, and they'll say, oh, and someone did it to me just a few days ago. We, we, we made a film about the three groups fighting ISIS. Um, in Iraq recently, and we were with the Ambar Awakening tribes in uh, Amri at Fallujah and There was a very heavy firefight while we were there and They showed us video of a guy in the exact spot where we were standing being shot in the head by a sniper and um, so we showed that 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 bit of footage and Someone spoke to me about a week ago, thinking that we had recorded that footage ourselves <laughs> and Our footage was you know high definition i 'd like to think very good yeah. quality. Uh, their footage was very grainy, wobbly, and it had uh, three months ago, you know, Ambar Awakening archive or something on the, on the on the screen. But maybe it's because they were, like I said earlier, making tea or checking their phone. You know, just thought it was all part of the yeah, same yeah. thing, and and that's very worrying when people can't tell the difference between, um, you know, video sourced from anywhere, from anyone's mobile phone, and and video sourced from, you know. So-called professionals <laughs> like, like, like us.
0: <laughs> I'm wondering if we can step uh, a little bit into uh, the methods of of how some of your uh, work comes together, starting with uh, the book. Um, how how did that essentially come together? Is was it was piece by piece, or you know, you kind of sat down at, at Microsoft Word on your computer and, and tried to hammer out as much as you could, or if there were any tools in particular you used, uh, or a, a certain like uh, philosophical approach to say, all right, this is the story I'm trying to tell, and you and you worked backwards off of that. Um, h- how did that come together?
2: Um, it, it was it was almost embarrassingly simple um i I'd, I'd got to the point where i'd had i'd had a few a few really close shaves and thought thought it was time for a a, you know, a bit of a break um so i got all of the footage i'd ever shot in in afghanistan and sat down with with a really good friend of mine who as a, as a translator and, and got everything i'd uh, recorded translated word for word um which i always wanted to do anyway and then i just went to i rented a, a, a very small house in southern italy and then a very small house in uh, South Carolina, and just watched every single tape from start to finish, and, and and wrote down. It was almost like having the you know the ultimate notepad. Um, just wrote down everything that I thought was you know of interest, um, and, and worth describing, and just just, just through it's uh, strange. You know, I, I I always thought that I could if I locked myself in a house somewhere, I'd i I'd, I'd, I'd and, and you know to write a book, become this this kind of um intellectual might not be the right word but intellectual monk who's just so focused on this one project that everything I do would be geared towards you know better sentences and, and you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a notepad and, and think of an idea of how I could improve a certain chapter and actually even when you've got very few distractions it's still quite easy to frisher away an entire day which I did often. Um, oh but you then were pretty focused
1: of... when I met you during that time.
2: Oh that's kind of you to say but I, you know I I would get to sort of 4 or 5 PM and then suddenly feel so guilty that I hadn't really done very much that then I would write from 5 PM till, till literally sunrise the next day. So eventually I was focused, but it was, it was hard to to just get started, but just got everything down on the page. And I think the final thing was something like 180,000 words and then just went through it, I don't know, four or five times, um, you know, removing as much fatty tissue as possible um, and polishing where I could. And it's, it's, I kind of, I think I figured out a, a style that works very well for me, almost by accident. You know that the, the first draft is always um, ugly and clunky, and, and you know then you just polish and polish and polish, and eventually there are passages where you think, actually, I'd, I'd, I'd quite like someone to read this. You know, this 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 those few paragraphs feel feel good. They feel they feel like they're you know vaguely vaguely well written, and that, that's all I did. It was in straight chronological order, um, and I tried to 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 start off, as I did start off in 2007, being, you know, very innocent and not really having an opinion and and you know, going along with the British soldiers who I was with at the time and thinking that this whole thing could work. Because um, at the time, you know, there hadn't been any any insider attacks and the the British troops were were living 24-7 with with their Afghan counterparts and there was a really serious effort to 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 train them. Um, as the attacks went up and up and up, then that happened less and less. And by the time the US Marines uh, took over. It was, you know, maybe one or two hours training a day, and that was it. And it was no, no one really took it seriously. But I tried to start off the book innocent, and then it wasn't really until the afterward that I let myself have an opinion um, right. and, and draw draw a conclusion and just say, look, this whole thing is 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 um, utterly futile, and and you know, we're not going to achieve any of the goals um, that that you, you so often hear we we are going to achieve or have achieved. Um, but but you know I, I tried to just be fairly impartial until I, I got to the afterword. I thought, okay, after I don't know what it was at that point. After six or seven years of going back and forth to Hellman, like I've earned the right to have to have an opinion now, and just yeah. um, and let that come out in the afterword. But if, have- even then, I don't I don't feel like I'm you know I, I can I can I can call myself an expert. You know you're you're always aware that no matter what you see is 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 a is a very small slice of of, of the whole picture there.
1: Did you have any kind of models um, uh, of, um, I mean, you talked earlier on, and we'll probably get back to this, about kind of books, which you feel are are, are important. Did you have any models of things you were trying to emulate in your own work?
2: Um, yeah, there were a few. Um, George Orwell's Homos to Catalonia. Um, and I just love his, his, his writing rules. You know, don't use a, a long word when a short one will do. Right. Um, when you go through that draft process, remove any word which isn't necessary. And, you know, when, when Orwell wrote that book, he was, he was, I'm sure, more braver than any foreign correspondent has ever been. Um, you know, went out and actually fought against the fascists, and was yeah. shot in the throat, was very nearly killed, and captured at the end. And yet he's so humble in that book. Um, and I, so I, I tried to try to follow that model because, you know, having worked with the, the famous reporter in BBC, if, if any ego creeps in, this huge wall now comes up. And I, if anything, I, I play things down rather than rather than play them up. But that, that was one model. And then I really liked um, uh, Evan Wright's Generation Kill. Uh, we spent a lot of time with U.S. Marines. Right. It was it was really entertaining writing, a lot like Hunter S. Thompson. Um, but but he was such a you know, solid journalist at the same time. Um, and, and, you know I I, read, I think I read the Great White shark hunt again when I, um, when I was when I was writing the book just because you know it's easy to forget with someone like Hunter s. Thompson how good um a journalist he was just because the writing was 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 so good and had so much energy but, but they're, they're the books where when I was struggling i'll just spend half an hour with those books and then i was I was I was ready to go again.
1: Do you have any thoughts on the kind of um, uh, distinction between fiction and non-fiction, and the extent to which you can kind of tell stories about countries um, in 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 the you know between the two, and you know whether one is able to capture more than the other?
2: Yes, I think I think novels can can normally capture capture far more. Um, as, as a writer, I don't think I have the power to do that. I don't think I'm good enough to write novels that, that do that. Um, you know, I I, I I like to just have a, a, a simple style of just, just, there's no art to it whatsoever. Um, it's not not sophisticated in any way. It's just, just the simple presentation of, of evidence. Um, and that's all it is. Um, so, you know, while I would agree that I think novels do show the bigger story or the bigger picture by far, Um, it's not something I've ever thought about doing or or, or thought I could do. And I I don't read that many novels, um, but but when I do, I'm sometimes frustrated by by wanting to know how much of it was actually true and how much much wasn't. Um, And that's why I think I'm sticking to to nonfiction for for the foreseeable future. Um, You know, I always want to know exactly what, what, what was true and what wasn't rather than what was, you know when several dots were connected that shouldn't have been just for the sake of a, of a nicer story
0: how do you prepare for uh, a project that you are about to undertake you know some of our uh, previous people we've talked to you know go through a total immersion process or other people like to approach it from kind of a, a clean slate you know how, how do you start mentally gearing yourself for uh, tackling the the topic at hand whatever it may be I guess this is more for your for your film work
2: yeah, um, if it's somewhere I've been before, then then it's just just talking to whoever I know on the ground, reading whatever whatever has been written recently. Um, try and try and rest as much as possible because I always find now the two or three days before you leave are often the worst uh, few days. You know, it's 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 hard to sleep. You don't you don't eat properly, um, and I'm. You know, I used to be so hungry to get on a plane and go somewhere. I would have, I would have, you know, used up my vacation to go go on a trip to Helmand or Gaza or somewhere. I'm a lot, lot more more wary now. And now it's more of a case of, you know, I hope I get through this, and I hope I do a good job, um, rather than this, this, you know, this 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 craving to get out there and see and do as much as possible. Um, so that's that that's difficult sometimes in terms of the preparation, because because you are thinking you know, is this the trip where, where, where something's going to happen? And you're also thinking, is this a trip where, where nothing's going to happen? That's all, also the fear as well, because, you know, you, you don't want to ever come back empty-handed. Um, if it's somewhere new I'm going to, um, and if it's somewhere that's that's fairly daunting, um, then I just, just you know, see if any of the writers who I love have written anything about those, those countries and just, just read everything by them, and that normally... Um, you know gets my curiosity so high that I just then I really want to go Um without that sometimes I, I, I kind of think you know maybe I should pass on this trip but then if I've read enough brilliant work on on, on a subject or a country then then I, I really want to go and I start I start seeing the possibilities of of what I might be able to film um, and then then you know the enthusiasm grows and grows and uh, you know pe- people sometimes talk about Uh, you know you need encouraged to do this job it's I don't think it has anything to do with courage I think if your if your curiosity is 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 right then then that just takes over from any fears you might have for your physical safety you know you you want to see see things so much that, that 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 becomes more important than any concerns about your your physical safety
1: um in the kind of um months I guess that we've kind of been uh, discussing um uh you you coming on you have been in um uh, probably a dozen maybe two dozen different countries um you're always kind of traveling um uh yet you're still kind of always producing new things it seems new projects um how are you getting so much done is that is there some kind of um, uh, attitude to how you tackle your work, or any particular wisdom you have to share?
2: Um, I mean, I've got the, 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 you know at the, the BBC I was one of the youngest people there uh, at Vice, I'm one of the oldest people here, and there are some <laughs> lo, lots of really young, really hungry, not kids here, but you know people in their early twenties who just 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 work so so hard and so fast, and and a lot of the bureaucracy that I became used to at the BBC just just doesn't exist here. Right. Um, there's not much of a commissioning process. So if I, I mean, I, you know, I just finished a film about about Yemen. Um, I think the pitch was two or three sentences saying, look, the Houthis have taken half the country. They'll let me back in again. Um, let me just spend two or three weeks there witnessing the the Saudi bombing. That that you know, and, and it was an instant yes, which it yeah. normally is. In fact, it always is. I think it, pretty much an instant yes. And then I just went, and then I come back, and and. On the way back, I, I write what I think the film will be, um, you know, a four or five page script um, just as a guide. And and there are editors here who I can trust to go, go through all of the footage, which is something I would normally do, um, and then start assembling something based on, on, on the cut I've written. And then a week and a half, two weeks later, we'll watch a rough cut and then we'll start fine tuning and fine tuning. Um, you know, then I'll write the voiceover and record it and then we show it to Shane and Shane comes back with some notes. But it's 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 a very fast process. When I was at the BBC, I would do maybe three big foreign films a year. I think I've done almost 30 since I've been at Vice. I've been at Vice for, for two and a half years. Um, and some of them are very short films. I, mean, I went to Bahrain on a on a tourist visa and spent a week with the with the protesters there and filmed them getting you know tear gassed and and everything else. Um, that eventually turned into five short films, just because one of the protesters was imprisoned, one of them lost his eye, he was shot you know at, at fairly close range with a yeah. tear gas canister. So we did we did several updates, but but a lot of those those roughly thirty films are you know it was one trip just just for that one film. Um, but, you know, I think if you've been somewhere, if you've got good contact on the ground, if you know roughly how to, how to get to the place you need to get to and, and, you know, you've got people who are willing to let you in, um, it doesn't need that much preparation. Um, you know, my average trip now is probably three weeks, whereas before it might, be, it might have been a month or two. Uh, and then I, sometimes I'll, I'll do two or three films, you know, in two or three different countries back to back uh, and then come back and, and spend a few weeks just looking after two or three films that are being edited at the same time. Um, so I think I think post production documentaries is where most of the time is normally taken up, um, and there are editors here that I can I can leave most of their own devices and spend just you know an hour a day with them here and there while I'm doing other things. And the, the great thing here as well is is you know whatever you want to do um, you can find a home for it. Um, I remember I did a film about the Afghan interpreters, and it was yeah. a, I think a 45 minute documentary on Vice News, and then I suddenly I had all the transcripts of all the interviews I'd done with all the interpreters together. And it was, it was 130,000 words, I think. So I said to, said to someone here, look, let me just you know, really edit this down. I can probably get it down to about 20,000 words. And just, just let's do an ebook of, of their own stories in their own words of, yeah. of what they're doing to try and escape. Um, and again, five-minute meeting. Um, it was agreed. Someone did a lovely job of designing it. And two months later, it was on the, the, you know, the Apple iBooks um, homepage. Um, and I, you know, if, if I would have tried to do that at the BBC, it would have been six months of meetings, and the answer probably would have been no at the end of the six months. or well, there probably wouldn't have been an answer at the, at the end of the six months. It would have just slowly, you know, drifted off and, and, and never happened. Um, so that that's encouraging as well. It's it's you know, I mean, it, I'm repeating myself, but it, it's not often you, you you hear of people who feel like they have unconditional support for for whatever they want to do. And I, you know, I think that's why why Vice have been doing so well recently is because they've just either ignored or weren't even aware of that rule that, that, that young people aren't interested in international current affairs. Um, you know, I was always told at the BBC that you have to come up with a new angle if you want to go back to Afghanistan or Congo or wherever, or, or maybe, you know, a celebrity has to be attached in some way. That seems to be the model they're following at, at, at the minute. Um, here I'll, I'll just explain why I think it's important to go to, to, to Yemen and, and film, you know, the Saudi bombing of, of everything that, that moves within Houthi areas with U.S. supplied US and U.K. supplied weapons. And, and that's it. I just, I, I just go and I've, I'm, I'm afforded enough time to, to, you know, actually see things happening and then, and then come back and someone else can, can, can almost put it together on their own. You know, I'm only involved a lot in, in, the, in, the, in the last week of editing.
0: How do you stay in touch with what's going on uh around the world or or in your uh industry so to speak you know are there any publications or or films or channels et cetera that you are kind of regularly looking for or following uh like what do you read on a daily basis
2: um I think I read the absolute standard things um the only thing I read cover to cover every week is probably the New Yorker, but I, I read the Times, the UK and, and, and US Times. You know, all all, all the magazines and, and papers everybody else would read. But I find very often that's that's just a starting point, and then and then you speak to people you know in in whatever country it is and 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 find not something entirely different, but but something something very different. So the the newspapers and magazines are a starting point, unless it's a you know twenty thousand word piece by someone in the in the New Yorker um twitter is 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 incredible for, for that was following our people. next question right <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. yeah and and you know i mean sort this, of this wasn't this wasn't me but a colleague of mine was in london and and uh, apparently someone someone probably from british intelligence came into the vice office for some sort of meeting and just went up to someone who'd been current cover, cover, covering syria for a long time and said oh yeah i, I recognize you i've seen your work and you know, you're amazing at following ISIS on Twitter and, and, and talking to ISIS on Twitter. How do you do it? And he said, Well, I follow them and they follow me, and then we send each other messages. That's that's it. <laughs> you know, there is there's no there's no secret language or there's no there's no trick to this. It's you know it's 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 very straightforward and it's you know I mean with ISIS in particular, but with, with any of these conflicts, it's 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 amazingly easy to keep up to date with things. I mean, I, I wake up now and, and read the New York Times on my iPad, and it's it's not often you read a story that you weren't you know even if it's happened within the last twenty four hours, it's not often you read a story that you weren't already aware of um, through Twitter. The, 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 the abuse is quite, is quite difficult. I mean, I've, I've, I recently was accused of being uh, pro-Sunni and anti-Shiite because I, I, I had a piece in my ISIS film about the disastrous rule of Nouri al-Maliki in Iraq. Um, and my Yemen film comes out in uh, a couple of weeks. So I'm right. sure I'm going to get accused of being uh, pro-Shiite, anti, anti-Sunni. Um, so, yeah, that, that can be hard to deal with because I just can't resist arguing sometimes. And, and you know, I, 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 okay. I should because um, it's completely pointless. You never get anywhere. Sometimes if you're really, really civil, uh, you might get somewhere. And someone might kind of reluctantly say, oh, yeah, sorry, I was a bit out of control from the get-go there. <laughs> Maybe I didn't need to explode with so much bile. Uh, oh, but people, aren't,
1: people aren't going on Twitter to, like, figure out the truth of whatever is going on. I mean, particularly <laughs> if they're engaging in that kind of comments. Yeah,
2: no, it's, and and, then, you know, especially with people are are using anonymous names on there. Um, I mean, I I don't know if, you know, in Bahrain, they've got 50 paid kids who are just just sitting there trolling all day long, but it it certainly feels that way with lots of people and lots of, lots of issues. Right. It's a shame though, because, you know, it it was supposed to be, you know, this, this uh, new era of communication, the free flow of information and, and, you know, it's actually turned into, um, you know, this, this, this sort of playground fight all day long hasn't it instead
0: uh, to expand on what you just said uh, you know has there ever been a moment where somebody uh, how do you deal with with criticism essentially has, has there been moments I mean, you know we all have the moments on Twitter where if you're a public person in any semblance, any sort of way, putting anything out there, you know, you'll find somebody who, who uh, hates everything you do and everything you stand for. But, you know, if the New Yorker came along (laughs) the publication you love reading, um, you know, and said, yeah, you know, your, your new film just really, really just sucks. uh, You know, how would this, uh, how would you kind of react to those comments? Does it empower you or, um, you know, what, what goes through your head when, when you read things that are, that are highly critical of your work?
2: I mean, I haven't, I have, I've been very lucky. I haven't, and I think- that's you just produce awesome
0: things all the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I just, like the work is, it's, it's, there's not that much of, I mean, you see me making it and taking part in making it, but it's not, I rarely get into to polemics, for example. I think that's when you really attract the heavy criticism. Um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just a portrait of what it looks like when a ta- town is handed to the Afghan police, for example. Right. Um, and it 's fairly right. to it 's difficult to argue with with you know footage of the Afghan police uh you know so high they can 't stand up admitting to child abuse um kidnapping people selling weapons it's so you know you you hope that the footage does the job for you and you 're not having to do it John Pilger you know I said earlier John Pilger was a hero of mine. now i, I just can 't read him um because there's there's there 's so much assumption it 's it 's almost just giving air to his his worst prejudices i think rather than any sense of of inquiry into anything and again, again that's why i love george orwell so much because there's just this constant questioning of his own beliefs and his own prejudices and his allies you know i think he'd sometimes attack his allies harder than than his opponents Um, so so touch wood, so far i haven't had someone i love and respect you know tearing tearing my my work apart i mean i've had i've had little things where i've I've, I've you know got a word wrong or something you know, and <laughs> a few people have come after me but I, you know I'd, I'd straight away admit that i might have got a I'd got a word wrong there's been nothing nothing serious so far um I, I i almost expect it to happen every single time a film comes out um and I, I think it will probably happen with, with the Yemen film soon, because it kind of happened a bit with the ISIS film. We're actually doing a film about Trump soon um, and slave labour in Dubai oh, yeah. on the Trump International Golf Course. Um, and I've heard stories about, you know, if, if Trump tweets at someone who criticised him, then you will just get tens of thousands wow. of messages yeah. aimed at you <laughs> from the worst groups imaginable. So I'm, I'm bracing myself for that slightly. Um, but but I think I can I can probably probably take that if you know it's uh, if if I got if I got ninety nine compliments and one insult, no matter who it was that was doing the insulting, that that's the comment I'd pay attention to more than any other because I'd, I'd right. always be thinking maybe they're right, <laughs> you know. Um, but but so far it hasn't got so bad that it's uh, you know actually damaged me.
1: Uh, you talked um, several times, kind of um, earlier uh, in kind of less than rosy terms about the BBC. Um, and i guess the bbc in some ways kind of represents these kind of old legacy media organisations um can you talk a little bit about kind of how how you've seen um uh, particular kind of um uh tv media world and how that's kind of changed um over the years that you've been working on it and and i guess the kind of role of of vice and and and, and how that's how that's shaping up the f- the future of it now
2: yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've got to say, I, I, in terms of, of using information, I still use uh, BBC quite a lot, and, and, and the radio. I, I download you know, my favourite uh, BBC radio programmes here because it's it's so much worse in in, in the US. Uh, and you know, it, it's very easy to make jokes about about Fox News. Um, some of the the left wing stations, I think, are, are almost as bad. I mean, you know, some of the MSNBC shows that they're sort of still right. doing that Republicans pronounced, you know, Iran wrong joke again and again. You think, really, have you not moved on from from something so simple? And it's it's just so preaching to the choir. Um, and and you know, when when films come out, I sometimes go on these shows to to answer a few questions about about the film and. Yeah. You just, you just feel a bit dirty afterwards because you know you're, it's almost like you have to be a, a trained actor with four or five rehearsed lines that you deliver with this mock enthusiasm, and there, there is no discussion whatsoever. Um, it's 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 awful, and and no no serious information exchange. I mean, I've I've been very lucky. I've done Charlie Rose twice, and he's incredible. It's a it's a real conversation over 40 45 or 50 minutes, but he's literally the only one where that 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 seems to happen. Um, and especially now, you know, as we're, I say, gearing up to the elections, they're still, what, nine months away. But, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just who has the loudest and most outrageous opinion um, gets on again and again and again. And it's, it's just people talking to each other behind glass glass desks. And it's, it's almost got to the point now where I think whichever side the, the pundit or, or host is on, uh, they can say something they know not to be true. And they know they'll take a hit in, you know, the New York Times, the New Yorker, or, or whatever, the next day. But, but they know that the vast majority, particularly of their, their viewers or their base, if it's a politician, won't even be aware of that. Um, and that's, that's fairly depressing in terms of uh, the, the power of, of, of journalists. Um, you know, I mean, you, you listen to some of the statements that, that, that Cruz and Rubio and Trump have made recently. I mean, so easy to disprove and are being disproven if you know where to look. But I'm sure they know that the vast majority, if not all of their their base, aren't aren't looking at, at those places, won't ever look at those places. And if if they come across, you know, a headline or or, or something, they'll just say, oh, it's the liberal or the right wing media doing what they always do. They can't be trusted. Um, and that's that that's been incredible to witness day in and, and, and day out here. Um, and that you know that the election coverage in particular. I mean, it's that, that it, it, it's it's almost more like sports commentary where it's you know the, the talk about tactics is is leading um the talk about actual policy is is almost non-existent
1: do you have any thoughts on the kind of demise of Al Jazeera America um as as I guess a kind of another option that that, that kind of existed um uh, yeah for for kind of news media in the states
2: um, yeah, I mean, I just think it's, it's a, it's a real shame. It was, I think it was the only TV channel in the US that was, you know, truly internationalist. Um, and if, if a hundred people died in Congo, that was treated, not the same, but almost the same as a hundred people dying in, 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 the US, which, you know, is as I think it should be. Um, but I think their viewing figures were, you know, I mean, literally in the tens of thousands of, of sometimes compared to the millions and millions that, that, you know, Hannity or O'Reilly, O'Reilly get. So, so it's a real shame, but I, I, I was always going to be surprised if, if, if that worked. Um, you know, I, I said to you before, one of the reasons I first got into this was because when you read about uh, the Congo or, or Afghanistan, you know, I, I, I just don't understand how that isn't front-page news, but it's clear that, that the vast majority of people really don't see it that way.
0: What stories are, uh, you know, to, to follow on that, you uh, what are the stories that are uh, uh around the world that are front page news that that you that you think of you know as such that that are not getting the the attention uh, that you you think they should be
2: oh i mean so many i mean uh, you know afghanistan would be the obvious obvious choice and that, that you know afghanistan right. was getting almost no coverage when there were still us and uk troops i mean i know there are now but yeah. still us and uk troops engaged uh, on a daily basis there and it was almost not covered but I mean I'm sure if you said to most most people now, uh, you know, what happened to the missing girls in Nigeria, are they still missing or not? I, right. I'm not sure most people would be able to tell you. Um and that that's one of one of so many examples. Um I mean Congo I think is is the great untold story and and, and probably you know the worst amount of, of war related deaths in any conflict since World War Two. Uh, Sudan is one of those one of those conflicts where it felt like everyone cared and was engaged for a period of weeks or months. Um, you know, the Janjaweed are now officially part of the Sudanese military and, and are doing the same thing they've always done in Darfur. Um, aid to the refugee camps has been cut to forty percent, so so those refugees are now are now starving. I I, I don't know when the last time I, I saw Sudan seriously covered here, um, and that that's 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 the really depressing thing is is when an issue does and then nothing actually changes, but then the public interest moves on. Um, that, that, that's really incredible to see. You'd have thought that if people are willing to you know, share videos and, and make photos with, with, you know, bring back our girls, then, then they'd have the curiosity to just keep on following the story to see what actually happened. But, but, But very often that doesn't seem to be the case. At the same time, I should I should perhaps be less cynical and say that the the, the great thing about work do, doing the, the Vice on HBO show is for the first time in a long time, you feel like you are getting through to a new audience. And, you know, when, when you do get pe- feedback, people are, you know, describing feelings that I had when I first read about East Timor and the invasion by Indonesia. Yep. Um, at the BBC, it's... You know, and I think the biggest danger for all of us is, is that you just preach to the choir... Um, and you don't actually change anyone's opinion on anything. Um, and I think the biggest danger for, and this seems particularly bad in, amongst TV journalists, but I think it's the same for print journalists as well, is is you do pieces based almost entirely on what your competitors are doing. Yeah. So you might be somewhere, and, and there's you know, a really important part of the story, but but one of your rivals covered it three months ago, and they may have covered it very badly, but you don't cover it because they did um or you cover something which is um you know just 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 because someone missed it or hasn't right. covered it yeah and that 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 seems very prevalent here and that 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 seems uh ridiculous because we you know we're not we're not making these 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 films for each other we're supposed to be making them for the for the viewer
1: um if you had a could kind of put together a uh dream project which wasn't sub, subject to editorial or financial constraints what would what would that be
2: uh you no, know, I, I said to someone the other day. Um, uh, I spoke to some students at NYU the other day, and I think I said, um, "You should always have an answer if if someone said to you, okay, here's thirty thousand uh, dollars. Where, where, where do you want to go? What, what story do you want to tell?'" Um, and and I can give you a few answers. There's there's not there's not one uh, you know that I'm, I'm I'm really really itching to do right now. I think it's it's been a very busy couple of years. I'm due a vacation. I've just been. Just been very ill so you know there's you no know, I'm, I'm i'm sad and embarrassed to say it. there's not not one i think i have to tell this story as soon as possible um i've got three or four lined up for the for the, for the near future there's there's another isis project there's um there's a there's a, a a fairly interesting um afghanistan project um there's there's a thing about climate change in russia and and um uh, you know uh, the methane holes there um, and the permafrost melting, which is opening up agricultural land for the first time in hundreds of years, um, but 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 there's not one where I would say to you, you know, I, I would rather do this story than 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 have a rest. Or <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> this is the one where you know it's like it's like Battle for Marga, um where I would have you know given anything and risked risked anything to do it. I think uh, to be honest, I'm either I'm either getting older, I just just need a need a need a few good sleeps. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, uh, mindful of your time here, uh, at the end of each show, we ask, uh, our guests if they have a few, uh, picks. And I'm curious if you have a book or two or several that, uh, are, you know, particularly, uh, powerful or, or have shaped you, uh, in any certain way that you'd like to give, give a shout out to.
2: Yeah. I I mentioned a few already. I thought, I thought, uh, the one I'd like to mention is, and it's actually it's it's two books, but I'm sure it's available as one somewhere. It's, it's just the complete essays of George Orwell. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most people have read the the, the more well-known works. The um, the essays are probably the thing more than anything else I can just go back to time and time again, and it's just just like a you know a triple shot of, of espresso. Um, it's just you know, um, and and it can it can be an essay about. How the English underappreciate the garden toad and you know him watching them go from <laughs> tadpole to toad and how beautiful their eyes are, or it can be you know, I mean I, I still share his um, his essay politics in the English, lang- English yeah. language with people almost on a weekly basis, um, and that there's a there's a I don't know if it's in the UK as well but there's a, the, a couple of beautiful editions came out a few years ago. One is called All Art Is Propaganda, and one is called Facing Unpleasant Facts. And together, they're the complete the complete essays of George Orwell, and, and yeah, I, I I love those books. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Matt, did you have a book um, that you wanted to mention this week? Uh,
0: yeah, the first first book of uh, 2016 was uh, that I read was um, the Twilight War: Secret History of America's 30 Year Conflict with Iran by a man named David Christ. Uh, fascinating uh, overview and also just uh, an exquisitely well researched book. Um, that I think a lot of people would find interesting, that, that pieces together uh, a lot, particularly around the 1980s, of essentially the relations between uh, the U.S. and Iran and answers part of that kind of global topic as to why they are um, the way they are. Ben, did you have a film that you would uh, recommend to our, to our viewers, uh, listeners?
2: Um, I, just, I just saw Spotlight a little while ago, which I think is one of the best and most accurate films about journalism, the best of journalism that that, that I've ever seen. It's that, great. That, that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah,
0: um, really in terms good. of
2: documentaries, there's a, and I thought I should say something slightly less less well-known, especially as it just won the Oscar, um, there's, there's a documentary called Staff Bender Balili, and it's about a, a uh, group of musicians in Congo who are homeless and paraplegic and start a band. Um, and... I think I might have actually seen them and and almost not stopped to hear them play, but someone did stop and heard them play and spoke to them and started making a film and it follows their journey over over three or four years, and the twists and turns are just incredible and and I'd highly recommend that to anyone and it was a great lesson for me because i you know when I saw it, I thought I'm sure I saw these guys in Kinshasa and didn't stop um and you know I think I think. And again, again, I'm waffling on about George Orwell again. But the quote was, uh, "What's his quote? Um, The the, the hardest struggle is hardest hardest daily struggle is to to constantly see what's in front of your nose." Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, You know that was a good lesson of of how I'd I'd, I'd fail to do that at that time. But it's a a brilliant, brilliant documentary.
0: Great. And Alex, uh, what have you been reading lately? What's your pick?
1: Um, I just happened to recently read a book by Cal Newport called Deep Work um, and uh, I have tried to um, kind of uh, stay away from from this kind of general genre of books recently Um, but um, this is actually, um, I found a really useful book. Um, It gets a little bit preachy at times. It's kind of on the the need to uh, focus on Um, uh, kind of meaningful work um, rather than doing kind of uh, many things uh, poorly Um, uh, and yeah it comes at a time when I'm kind of immersing myself quite deeply in in finishing off my PhD um, and it uh, had a bunch of useful advice um, and general uh, encouragement there so um, I think anyone who listens to this podcast would find that useful and interesting.
2: Mm -hmm. i I just went through your goodreads profile alex and you've you've got me wanting to read now all kinds of what look like self-help books (laughs) which i would never even consider reading before but based on your review i've now put them on my want to read shelf um and yeah to anyone listening it's, it's well worth going through alex's goodreads profile i mean it's it's always daunting because i don't know how you read that many books in a year and you always you know even if you think you did well uh alex have read <laughs> four times as many books
1: not this year but not I'm, this year <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah I've, I've now got books on my to read list about um how to look after my gut better and how to be more productive and all kinds of things that i never thought i'd read so <laughs> i think thank you for that
0: <laughs> <laughs> and ben last question for the show uh a piece of music or a song
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe especially after listening to this this, this podcast, there's a song called Manteca by Dizzy Gillespie and you have to listen to the Newport 63 version. It's it's an album of a, of a concert he did in Newport in 63. Um, And it's just, I mean, he, he seemed like he was the life and soul of the party. And this song is just the perfect example of that. And if, if, I think it's 8 minutes long and if 2 or 3 minutes into it you're not ready to just kick down your own door and storm out and you know start doing amazing projects and being amazingly kind to everyone you see then then there's something wrong with you it's uh, it's, it's <laughs> an incredible song my favorite song of all time probably
0: Uh, That's great. Well, Ben, that does it for for the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, if you heard a reference to something, a book, or a website, or an article, the full show notes with links to everything we discussed in the show can be found at sourcesandmethods.com. If you enjoyed what you heard this week and in previous episodes, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or on Twitter or in real life. Thanks for listening.